founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, welcome back. Jordan and I have the privilege to have a conversation with Casey Holiday, co-founder of Kalo, the silicon silicone wedding band makers committed to the most important commitments you have, namely your spouse and your family. Kalo is hyper-focused on quality, athletics, love, and outdoors, and providing people with products that give them the opportunity to represent a commitment that means so much to them 24-7. Casey built Kalo after going to firefighting school working in the film industry and bartending for a bit before he realized those things weren't fulfilling him. In 2018, Kayla was named number 151 on Inc.'s 500 fastest growing private companies. Today, Kayla rings are worn by giants like Dale Earnhardt Jr., LeBron James, Steph Curry, and hundreds of other athletes, in addition to the firefighters, police officers, military personnel, and everyday athletes that have donned the non-traditional bands. So today, Casey Holiday, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate yes, sir. I appreciate the intro very much. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm, it's so, so fun having you here. Obviously, you guys have, have dominated the new-ish industry uh, mm-hmm. that Kalo uh, has created or been a part of creating. And it's so fun because I remember seeing them for the first time on like my Facebook advertisements. Oh, yeah. We'll find you there. Yeah. yeah. There, we'll find you. Oh, I saw. <laughs> I was like, wow, what an interesting idea, you know? Um, that was early on in, you know, I'm coming up on, uh, this will be Jordan and I both have our 10 year anniversaries with our wives, uh, coming up this fall. And so it was somewhere early in the year. So like, again, when did this start? That would have been early in my marriage when I was hyper aware of not wanting to lose my ring. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. That's why those advertisers caught my, caught my attention. Um, so yeah, when was that? That probably would have been, gosh, 2014, I would say. It's probably when we actually started running the Facebook ads and started realizing what that engine could do for us. Mm. Um, and so, because we, we launched on March 1st of 2013 was when I like clicked go live on the website. Wow. Um, and yeah. uh, nobody came to it, but that's when I clicked live. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> All it was about the leads. A, exactly. It was about a year later uh, that we started actually digging into Facebook a little bit and seeing what it could do. And yeah. then it just kind of exploded from there. Wow. So yeah, I'd love to back up then. What gave you, what was the inspiration for starting that company? Yeah, I wish it was some crazy story where I almost lost a finger or something like that, but that really Jimmy wasn't Kimmel it. Or Jimmy yeah, Fallon. Yeah. Jimmy Fallon type thing. Yeah, yeah no, it was uh, really, I was working, I was living in LA. I was bartending in Beverly Hills. Um, trying to just kind of make a go at the film and television industry. And I actually met my wife randomly. I wrote a movie and cast her in it. I'd never met her before and cast her as the actress in it. And then we ended up getting married about eight months later um, after shooting the movie. So totally random. And I say like, that's basically the only reason I acted was to meet my wife because I did nothing really after that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well done. So, so, uh, So we got married and then, uh, it was, I was about three or four months into marriage, I think it was, and I realized that wearing a metal ring was just kind of a pain in the butt. But again, I, it wasn't like I had some grand idea of, of creating a solution for it. It was just like, oh, this is just kind of a pain. I remember I would play golf and like, I screwed up like my hand playing golf one time and I would work out and I would take it off and Same. I'm a pretty forgetful guy. And so I would leave it and like a couple of days later, I'd 
find it and pretend like I knew where it was the whole time. And, um, and so I was working at a restaurant and then my eventual co-founder of Kalo uh, actually managed the restaurant. And so one day in passing, he had actually just married his wife as well. And one day in passing, we were just two newlywed guys just talking about wedding rings, you know, cause you're excited about everything. And, uh, just saying, Hey, are you wearing yours? And he kind of talked about how he wasn't, he chose not to wear one cause it was a pain. And I was like, well, I'm taking mine off. And it actually started as let's figure out, let's just buy one that already exists. That isn't metal. You know, that's kind of like was the plan. So it was, it was, Hey, we have these metal ones, but it wasn't, let's create it. It was, Hey, let's just go find a solution for ourselves. Cause somebody had to have created this before. Like it's gotta be right. out there. And then we like, we were like, okay, cool. Let's just come back a couple of days later. And we were like, it doesn't, really exist and then we started brainstorming like well what if we made it for ourselves and honestly it was never this we have this grand vision of this thing ending up on the ink 500 and like that that wasn't what it was at all it was just a couple of guys that had an idea to try and solve a problem for ourselves and so once we realized it didn't really exist out there we were like well let's let's go for it and kind of he was like look man if you're in i'm in like let's just go for it and see see what happens and so we had a friend that had a manufacturer in town and we like mm. went to um, a hotel in Beverly Hills and pretended to be way more official than we actually were, you know? And like, I think I put on the one collared shirt I had you know, <laughs> like, went, and went to the hotel and sat down and like acted like we kind of had this grand plan and sat down. And then from there, it's like he left and, you know, about 60 days later, we had a, our first sample of the actual product. So wow. you know, we had no clue what we were doing, but it was just about doing it. Yeah. And I'm just curious on the technical side, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine it, but uh, sometimes I'm surprised at where the troubles are. Was there a innovation process? Was there on, on finding the right material to make it out of? And, you know, the whole manufacturing part, which I'm sure I wouldn't have a clue of. It sounds like you didn't have any background in. Oh, was, that pretty sim- was that pretty simple or did it have to go through some of its own headaches to get the right thing? I mean, for, I think because of the simplicity of the product, it was probably about 10 times easier for us than it is for most people in manufacturing because manufacturing, sure. regardless of where you do it, is going to come with some headaches. But for us, it was actually still surprisingly pretty difficult. Um, mm. And there's a couple, there was a couple barriers that played a role in it. One, we didn't have any money. So we just self-funded the entire thing. And so my savings account was embarrassing if anybody was going to look at it. And, and Ted, my partner's was a little more attractive than mine was. And so he was able to help out with some of the payments initially, but we, you do it through molds and we couldn't afford really expensive molds. And so we got like the cheapest molds possible for the actual ring itself. And the material, I actually had um, really good friends of mine that started power balance, the silicone bracelet company from, you know, back in the day. Yeah. It really kind of jump started a lot of this type of marketing with influencer marketing and athletes and things like that. Um, yeah. And uh, and so I knew that it was a silicone was a material that I was familiar with. I'd been around it and I knew that it made sense for where it was good for athletes, that kind of a thing. And so we were like, well, let's just give it a shot, you know. And so we um, the process was actually we went to I think we went to like a Marshall's and they have like a jewelry section. And we went in there and we're like, we'll take three of those men's rings. Yeah, those look good. And we sent those to the manufacturer and we said, basically, can you make these out of silicone with the cheapest mold you possibly have? <laughs> that was, mm. that was yeah. really our process. And there was a lot of iterations. And um, to be honest with you, for the first two years of Kalo, we used that manufacturer and the quality was awful. It was awful. It was like 100% of the rings were not sellable. 
And so they would, we would get them and they would ship them to us in just big boxes of just like, here's, and we had small, medium, and large. Like we didn't even have like actual ring sizes. Which ring I, don't sizes. Know what, I don't know what the heck we were thinking. Like nobody's a medium ring. Like ever. <laughs> nobody's ever been that ever. And, uh, but that's what we did. And, uh, and yes. we would get them and we would just get a bag of them. And in order to help with pricing, you know, you got, you'd have to order a little bit more than we probably even thought that we would sell. Yeah. And we would take, um, I, I had moved in with my mom at the time. So a lot of backstory being thrown in here, but I'd moved in with my mom. My wife and I had moved in with my mom to try and grow Kalo. And I found a pair of eyebrow scissors in the bathroom and they're like scissors. I didn't even know those things existed. And they were like, you know, they're about four inches, five inches. Yeah. And we would actually hand trim every single ring that we got. Oh my goodness. Whoa. So we would sit. Oh yeah. So we would get, honestly, and this is not an exaggeration. I have probably hand trimmed like 50,000 Kalo rings. And <laughs> I, I swear if I was exaggerating, it, it's not. And if you bought a Kalo in the first two years, the odds are that I sat either in my bedroom with my wife watching a lost episode, trimming that ring, yes. or it was like a ring trimming party that we would have with friends where it was like we'd get 10 to 15 people together and we'd order pizza and everybody would just trim rings. <laughs> just ludicrous. And we never thought to go, we should probably change manufacturers. It was like, <laughs> how do we get more friends to help us trim these rings? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it, was just, it just goes to show like how we just didn't really even, didn't really even think about it. We were just, just trudging along. Okay, Man. so I have to, this made me laugh while you're talking about it. And then I have a real question for you. This is- yeah. Dumb, but you talked about your friend that started the silicon uh wristband and, yeah and i remember the trend especially with uh lance armstrong oh, yeah. uh that that made things real popular with the live strong bands and right around that time when i was in high school i i don't remember why but lebron james had like his own wristband mm-hmm. and i'm not even a huge basketball fan but for some reason i bought one and i had one on i don't know if a friend gave it to me or something and my dad is such a pragmatist he's such a practical person that I, he was sitting next to me and I had that band on. He looks over and he sees the band and he goes, son, what in the world has LeBron James ever done for you? <laughs> and my brother-in-law was there and started dying laughing. It gets brought up at least once a year about when I was randomly wearing a LeBron James wristband that I'm not a basketball fan. Like, my Dad, dad what it's about. It's cool. Like, exactly. It's- he does things for me at school with my friends because I'm cool. <laughs> yeah. My dad's brain, he was so confused. He wasn't trying to be a dick. He was just like, what in the world has he done for you? Why are you? Walk me through the connection here. Like, tell, <laughs> me right. your, tell me your brand affinity for LeBron James. And I had none. I was just so embarrassed. I had no, I had no good, yeah. good reason. Did you wear uh, it? It says Mike McClure ever since, right? Yeah. I wore, <laughs> I wore it out of spite for about another month. And then I realized how dumb it was and I got rid of it. So that was the end of that, that trend for me. My question though, my real question would be early on, you've got, sounds like, pretty shitty uh quality coming from the manufacturer that's that's putting it kindly yes you've probably used all or if not most of all the capital to even just get that you're hand trimming what you got to make it work yep where did where did the first sales even come from then was it just friends and family were you selling out of the trunk of your car was it website like how did you survive that that first stage yeah so initially really the first year because of what we were selling it wasn't a product it wasn't like we we you know, evolved a version of shoes that somebody else was already selling. And we had to get people to just understand why ours were different. We had to get people to understand why they even needed our product at all, which is just sort of an extra barrier in the initial phases of marketing where it's like, we need to not only like 
tell people our product exists, we need to educate them on what it actually is. And while doing that, we also need to break through a thousand year old tradition, you know, of people just right. wearing metal jewelry. And so there was a real uphill battle. So the first year of us, we didn't even go, oh, we've got this grand plan of estimated revenue. It was just like, we just need to understand whether or not this is even a real idea or if anybody besides me, my business partner and my father-in-law are interested in actually buying one of these things, you know, yeah. right. um, because my, my wife married a bartender and you, you would have thought that that was the most <laughs> proud moment of all time when he realized that I was going to go sell silicone wedding rings. Like, can you actually go back to being a bartender? That actually gave me a lot more security. Like, could you go, you know? And so he was our We know client. people are drunks. So you got job security there, all right? Yeah, exactly. People are going to keep showing up to the bar. Like, I don't know yeah. if anyone's ever going to buy one of these. And so it was yeah. like, why don't we go through sort of the Rolodex of what we have to use an old term of just like, who we know that we think may actually like this product. And mm -hmm. so the first six to 12 months was really what we called seeding, which was just getting the product to people without any expectation of them buying one, paying for it or wearing it. Mm -hmm. And so it was just like, Hey, if I can just get this in this person's hands and we can explain it well through a card or whatever it is that comes along with it, then maybe it will just like, there'll be a light bulb moment for them and they'll go, this is kind of interesting. Like I'll give this a shot. And yeah. so really the, the first six months weren't about, Hey, we didn't knew nothing. Like guys, I don't exaggerate when I say we knew nothing. Like we didn't know anything about an e-commerce business. We sat and built a Shopify mm. store really in the early days of Shopify. Even. And I remember debating over whether or not we could afford a $99 theme. And mm -hmm. it was like, what colors do we want to choose? It was like the most fun ever. And we got the worst logo of all time. Like everything was bad. <laughs> But we just believed in what we were doing. And for us, it was, let's at least figure out if this really is bad as soon as we possibly can, which I'm a huge advocate for in business. Like, if you have an yeah. idea, find out whether, it's not, whether or not it's a good one as soon as you possibly can. And yeah. if it's not, don't be sensitive about it. Check that box and move on to the next one. And if you start seeing a little bit of traction, then maybe you realize there's actually something there. And then you push into that a little further. Yeah. And that's really what we did with Kalo. It was, hey... We, you know, through, I had uh, some friends that had um, gone on to play professional sports or were in the sports world or were athletes. And it was just sort of like, well, I'm going to send it to them. You know, they're kind of newlyweds. Let's get it out to them. And so we just started sending it to people and firefighters. We would, we would get put boxes together for firehouses mm -hmm. and we would send it to them. We say, Hey, we know that you guys take your rings off when you get to work. Well, now you can take your family with you everywhere you go. Yeah. Because what, you know, the, the, like those men and women, they show up to the job, they take their wedding rings off and then they go risk their lives. Yeah. It's like, you know, there's actually something cool about being able to take your family with you when you're going through that work day. Oh yeah. And yeah. so we kind of, initially I would say the process really was let's identify audiences that we think this resonates with people who work with their hands and really for athletes. Kalo initially was a lot more about going after people that are athletes that are weightlifting and training and um, you know, living an outdoor lifestyle, like that kind of a thing, way more than yeah. it was about occupational hazards as a result of rings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we identified the audiences and we said, okay, like military, police and fire and, um, and athletes. Like, let's just try and like, just get rings. So we would like have friends that we knew that were in the military. 
because everybody kind of knows through degrees of separation, somebody that's in the military. So we were like, let's send him rings. Like, that'd be awesome. Like while he's deployed, he actually can now wear it. Like that's a really cool thing to get to share with somebody or give somebody the opportunity to do. So we would highlight that. And then it was, okay, uh, police and fire. We know that there's safety precautions with wearing a metal ring on the job while you're doing that. And we know Mm. that a lot of times they take the ring off. Cool. So let's send it to, again, degrees of separation, police and fire. And then it was like, okay, what athletes do we know? And that's a lot of times that one of them is pretty shameless outreach and athletes really were. It was people that we maybe had a few, you know, touch points with, or we were going through mutual friends to try and get to them. But yeah, one thing I say to a lot of people in the early phases of business is you actually know more people than you think you do. And yeah. just because your friend circle is this big, doesn't mean that there isn't a larger circle of people that would at the very least be willing to get your message and throw it in the trash at the very least. Like yeah, yeah. Send it to them. Know. the worst, the worst that happens is you're in the exact same boat you're in right now. Like yeah. honestly, like, and you've gotten to know, so maybe you're one step closer to going, Oh, maybe this didn't work or I did something wrong. Like you're one step closer to making something better. Mm. And so that's why I always just challenge people. I'm like, go, you probably have an uncle that's no, is an attorney or you've got, you know, a friend that's the, like, you have resources that exist out there. You just have to dig through a little bit to find them. Mm. And uh, so for us, anyway, long answer to your question, we just sent it to people. We found people that were, um, that were, uh, there's a, there was a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. It was like one of the yes. first books he wrote. Love that book. And I read that and he's basically in it. He talks about how bloggers are always looking for content. Like people are always looking for something to write about. If you're somebody that has to create content every day. And so I kind of read that and I was like, well, then I'm just going to reach out to bloggers that talk about marriage and athletics and relationships and all that kind of stuff. And so we just started again, just reaching out to people and doing just, just cold calling and cold outreach and sending messages, but then also actually sending the product itself out. And, um, that's, that process is actually what jump-started our business and gave us like that moment that was a, a proof of concept. Wow. So I'm kind of curious, like what, uh, stepping into even your own personal schedule for a second, like what did life look like for you? You, you, you were married by that time. I was married. Yeah. Newly so I, married. Yep. Uh, so the, the first year of my life was, um, we launched the business March 1st, 2013. Yeah. And in about May, I, so I was still working at the restaurant. So I was at five days a week at the restaurant. Obviously the company wasn't making any money. And yeah. my, my dream when I started this business was to be the one eating lunch at lunchtime, not the one serving lunch. So all yeah. I wanted to do was just not wait tables anymore. Wow. It was never about getting rich. That was like that. Honestly, it didn't even seem fathomable that like yeah. this would generate a lot of income Double for me. Double. So it was, yeah. yeah, it was just like, man, if I can make like 2,500 bucks a month, like I'll be killing it. Like I'm an entrepreneur. Like my wife, <laughs> and I'm living the good life. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's yeah. what it was. That was it. And, and, uh, and so we decided that, you know, the, the best thing that we could do was commit a lot of our time to growing the business, especially once it started to get a little bit of traction. I'm like, dude, I just want to give yeah. it everything I've got to determine whether or not it's going to be successful. And my business partner, he had a kid, he managed, you know, so he had a little bit more, you know, fixed overhead from a life perspective than I did. And so that was kind of a cool agreement that we had where I was like, look, I can, I'll move South about an hour and a half from Beverly Hills. Yeah. And I will move in with my mom and he was like, okay, well, then I'm still going to have to focus on these things. I'm not going to be able to quite put as much time in, but I can put a little bit more money in. I'm like, cool. I'll put a little bit more time in. And we had a really 
cool agreement there wow. um, that makes sense. And I would encourage, you know, not everybody's in the exact same life position when they start businesses. And so if you can create really cool agreed upon compromise that doesn't build resentment later, do yeah. it. You know, because not everybody's going to be in the exact same boat when they start something. Yeah. I know you have to do, you have to do so many different jobs when you're in that, in that season and you just communicated quite a few, like, what did you start to learn? Cause you had a partner with you. Like, what did you start to learn about your own unique abilities? I, I've even doing the, doing our homework. We, you've got a pretty good LinkedIn statement about your unique ability, but what did you start to learn about your strengths and weaknesses during that time? And like, what, what were the things you're like, Oh gosh, I, I suck at this, but I got to keep doing it. And like, or what are some of the things we were like, I didn't even know I was good at this, but I started crushing it. Like, what'd you learn about strengths and weaknesses during that time? Yeah. I mean, I mean, fortunately in the early days, my business partner and I had a pretty uh, like solid separation of duties and they were things that we knew that we were actually pretty good at. Mm, yeah. um, and so for me early in the beginning, I focused very much on the marketing, on the brand aspect, on the community building aspect, and almost like for lack of a better term, the nurturing of our business and our customers. Yeah. So really the brand side of things where everything from what we believed, why we believed it, what we were trying to accomplish as a business, and then how we communicated that to customers and then built a community through that. And my business partner is less the nurturer, more the business guy, you know, so he cared very much about running the finance of things. He dealt with our manufacturer in the early days. Um, he dealt with like the legality issues, getting operating agreements, like very much on that side of things. And yeah. what I learned early was that I hated all of those things, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and so we were able to actually separate them pretty well, but a lot of people and a lot, not everybody has that nice balance. And yeah. what I found in working with entrepreneurs since then is that they're either doing a lot of the same things, which is like a really inefficient, ineffective way of going things along, or you're doing a bunch of things that you don't like. And the progression of entrepreneurship yeah. and growing a business is you just doing less of the things that you don't like doing and settling into what you do enjoy doing. And I just learned that, um, and even what you guys said before we even jumped on the recording side of things, where it's like, you guys care a lot about the humans behind the entrepreneurs. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's, yes, the businesses are awesome, but there's also humans that are making up these businesses that are building the really cool things. Yeah. And that is where my heart is and where it has always been is yeah. I really like business and I like what business can provide. But what I really like is the humans that make it up and all of the different nuances that come along with building a really rad team with a very clear mission of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And then a really clear understanding of the strategy of how you're going to get it there. Um, and so that's really what I focused a lot on in growing Kalo. And so I was able to, you know, I didn't like posting on Facebook every day and Instagram every day is a grind and doing customer service in those days is a grind. And, you know, my cell phone was our customer service line. So like we would, I'd wait, I'm on the West coast and I'd wake up and the East coast had been up for hours. And so when things started picking up, I would wake up, I would have 15 voicemails from customers on my personal cell phone. Wow. And when it's seven 30 in the morning, the last thing you want to do is call, you know, Gus and you know, Oklahoma and talk to him about how his ring didn't fit. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not what you want to do, but like, that's what you had to do. And so, um, you know, that was kind of a grind where I really liked, um, strategically visioning out like where I believe the brand could go. Yeah. You know, well, and, and once it started to feel real and it was like, man, this thing's actually gaining some traction. Like what could this become? I loved 
really strategically looking at how we could bring our brand to life and build a community that really resonated with people beyond just, oh, this is a silicone ring. And we identified early on, fortunately for us, like um, we had some people that gave us the wisdom and foresight to be able to say, hey, you know, you're going to run into some obstacles because of the barrier to entry and because of, you know, it being a pretty relatively inexpensive product, like you're going to run into barriers. And so if you don't have a brand that's a really solid accomplice to this product, you're probably going to stop existing in a couple of years. And mm-hmm. so, um, because people copy, what works. Yeah, copy, people copy what people copy, what works. And so, um, you know, we recognize the first mover advantage, but one of the big things was like, we have to build a brand where people wear Kalo because it's Kalo, not because it's silicone ring. Yep. And that was a big focus for us. And that's really what I spent a lot of my time focusing on. And I, I realized early that that's what I really enjoyed where the operating agreements and the finance and the, you know, cool, I can do it, but that's not what I enjoy. Mm, man. Okay. Several things I want to touch on. Uh, one is a conversation I've been having recently with uh, several different business owners where uh, I, was, I was saying, if we can be honest, being a business owner or an entrepreneur actually has a lot more negatives or burdens than we like to admit because it sounds really cool and it's sexy and whatever, right? But it's like you get all the pressure, all the liability. Oh, yeah. uh, you, you, you escape a 40-hour-a-week job to usually work a 90-hour-a-week job, right? Um, so what's the positive? What's the problem? That's, said, so why do you do that? That's right. That's right. Sick. That's why, because we're sick people. That's, that's why we do it. That's right. But I do think what you said earlier is the biggest positive. I was like, the biggest positive that's supposed to outweigh all this is that you get to create the world you live in. Like that is the, the exciting part to a visionary people is like, what if I could create a culture and a company that like, it was actually amazing to be a part of. And for those 90 hours a week or whatever, not just me, but the people I brought into it love this or motivated by this. Like that's, and, and so when we sacrifice that, when we don't, it's like you, you let go of the one thing that was like the really great thing about having your own business is you got to create a micro world, mm-hmm. you know, where you got to create its values, its rhythms, it's all those kinds of things things and so i, I want to just touch on that for a second because it sounds like that geeks you out as well oh. and one of them you said was i want to create a rad team you know that people are pumped to be a part of so take me into that like how do, you know where did you start in doing that and then what did that end up looking like and how did you build a culture that you were excited to to be a part of for sure and it's it's actually one of the really challenging pieces for a couple of reasons in the early phases a lot of people don't define what they want their culture to be um, before they actually bring people into it And in the early days, you just need to get doers. A lot of times, like for me, our first hire was like, dude, here's my cell phone. Call these people back. Like I can't do it anymore. You know, so you're bringing people in to just help you take things off of your plate and sort of eliminate that feeling of being really overwhelmed. And so you're not necessarily going through the, like the robust process of hiring and taking them through multiple interviews. You're like, Hey, do you have a friend that needs a part-time job? Cause I'm losing my mind. Yeah, cool. And it's like, okay, cool. Here we are. Right. I'm an avid believer that like that person is being now it's, you are now responsible for that person. They're being brought into a world that you are in charge of creating. And if you haven't defined what it means to be successful in that world, what it means to even be a part of that world, traditions of like behaviors that are okay. Yeah. Okay. If you haven't done that, then it's not going to end well because everything, just like any honeymoon period, you have it with employees as well. Right. Mm. You've got the first, they're excited. They're so excited to be a part of what you're doing. They believe in what you're doing. And then you get a couple months in and you haven't told them how they can be successful in that job. And now they're frustrated Mm. and they're a little resentful. And now the purpose isn't as meaningful to them because 
they didn't understand how they could be successful within the framework of that purpose as an organization. And so even from employee number one, I say like, you need to put the work in as a leader and as a founder to make sure that you have a clear picture of what it is that you're bringing in, them into. And it doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean there's not going to be adversity that comes along the way, but stability matters for employees. Um, and when you look at like what people value in jobs, it's security. It's feeling yeah. like they're coming to a place that makes them feel safe because at the end of the day, they're not the ones that are calling the shots. You are. And so they're saying, cool, I'll sacrifice hours and hours in my week to build something that you created where I actually don't get any decisions regarding whether or not it's successful. Yeah. That, like, that, you want to add a, an extra layer from entrepreneurship that's difficult, like convincing people yeah. to do that when yeah. you have barely any revenue and the, the company really isn't anything. But the mm -hmm. interesting thing is those behaviors, if you can get them with employee one, they're going to then matter and be even cooler when you get to employee a hundred, mm. you know? And so I'm just a, a firm believer in putting that work in to bring employees into a place where they can thrive based off of structure and security and not worrying about the future. Like that's yeah. your job. Um, and I believe that, you know, even in the early days of entrepreneurship and starting a business, sometimes people hear structure and they're like, that's limits, that's limits. And you're like, yeah. well, yeah, it's boundaries to people doing things that they shouldn't be doing that aren't actually effective for your company. And so structure actually gives people the opportunity to thrive. Yes. Come on. Because yeah. like creativity can exist within that structure and like having just a clear understanding for them of like, cool. Because I believe that everybody was created with a purpose, and I believe yeah. that everybody feels the best when they're fulfilling that purpose, separate 100%. from money, anything else. Those are nice things to go with it. But mm -hmm. if you have employees, that yes, they recognize the purpose for your organization first and foremost, because it's, it's bigger than me and it's bigger than them. But when they wake up and they know what it means to be successful within their job every day, they can go home at night feeling like they accomplished something. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. a huge deal. And, and so that's where it's like, even in the early days, I love, I love building teams. I love the concept of creating cultures and organizations that give employees the opportunity to thrive. And it's as yeah. important with employee one as it is with it later. And, and for me at Kalo, that was really what I, like that was where a lot of my brain and my own creativity existed within saying like, Hey, this thing is kind of a rocket ship. And Ted and I aren't the only ones like we need that control room, right? That's getting this thing launched. That's figuring out how we do what and keep it in orbit and all this kind of stuff. And if mm. we aren't providing a rad environment for them to come into where they can thrive, then we're not doing our job well. And in at Kalo, we that. went in the early days too. You're, you're oftentimes you don't have a lot of money to pay people. You're not in a sexy office. Like mm -hmm. you don't have the accolades or the attributes that get people excited to come work at companies traditionally, especially in this Google and Facebook world, right? Or people right. have popcorn machines on their desk. You know, it's like, you don't have <laughs> that. And so you have to provide them more and you have to be able to be that visionary, but not just have a vision, be able to communicate that vision yeah. mm. and be able to help them understand how they're playing a role in bringing it to life. And when your employee can sit across from you, you can say, Hey, how are you helping to bring this purpose to life? And they're like, here's how. Dude, that's when their eyes light up and they, they stop going, oh, I'm only making this amount of money. Like when, you have, like when you're having a conversation, yeah. especially in the early days with employees about how much money they're making, they're probably not the right fit because they're wow. not going to be making as much as they could somewhere else. Yeah. So uh, I love that. I, I'm, right, that's I'm a lot of stuff. That's no, so that's good. good. I want to go back to structure and hit that for a second. 
one, you're certainly speaking our, our language and maybe even really tapping into our purpose, you know, just as human <laughs> beings yep. of Drew and I, and, and probably the reason why we tried to start a, a company around talent optimization is because of our, our personal purpose that we feel tied to this. But I want to hit on the structure thing. The I, I love it. And I'm even thinking like, all right, like I, I speak to even the audience about what are some tools that you actually say, hey, here's the thing to pay attention to. Like we've had lots of conversations around leveraging values. And even a, a, a founder talked about he's, he's tried to upgrade his values to virtues to make them even more actionable. So there's that. But what other tools did you use to drive traditions, behaviors, ad structure? Um, yeah, what are some of the tool sets that you, you applied or that you learned along the way from some book or some mentor? Sure. I'd love sure. that. Yeah, so I would say First and foremost, before like an actual tangible tool, I would say that there's a process that's really helpful. And that is understanding in the early phases of businesses that you're most likely hiring people that you know, or somebody that was a recommendation from someone that you know. And so there is fewer degrees of separation between you, which means that there's an added emotional layer that makes your job harder to do. I am I'm a huge advocate for working with friends. I actually think it can be a really cool thing because it can help you eliminate whether or not this person's a culture fit, right? Like you're like, I know that they are. I know who they are. I know what they believe in. I know the way that they are around their kid. Like I know them. And so yeah. I feel confident bringing them in. But with that actually comes an added layer of complexity where when they don't do a good job or when you need to reprimand's not the right word, but you need to come down on them for performance or something yeah. like that, where I would say in the, in the very early days of hiring, make sure that you have as black and white expectations for them in their role as possible, because your job in managing them is to eliminate the emotional complexity that can very easily slip into those conversations where actually me letting you go or telling you or telling you that you're doing a great job is because I like you or I don't like you. Yeah. And it actually has nothing to do with why I'm having this conversation with you because once we get into this building, it's about the purpose that's bigger than you and me. And helping them understand that where our relationship is a nice piece that contributes to our culture, but it has nothing to do with whether or not your performance is good or bad or acceptable or not acceptable. And so if you can come in and even sit down quarterly and go, hey, let's together, not me telling you, let's together determine what are good goals for you for the next 90 days, for the next six months, however you want to do it. And agree on them together and they have a copy of them and you have a copy of them. And it's not just like, like uh, improve our marketing. That's not a measurable metric, right? So that can be a goal that you have, but then there has to be a tangible KPI, whatever buzzword you want to use, metric that says, hey, this is how you did a good job. Yep. So when you sit across them from them after 90 days, when you're reviewing their performance and you slide a sheet of paper across that has the, the their metrics filled in and you go, take me through this a little bit, and it's not good, then <laughs> like then it's less of like, hey, I don't like you, and more of like, hey, we agreed on this together. Like, don't put me in a position to let you go. Like I said that with, and, and I don't mean to just uh, like harp on the negative side of him, of hiring people, but I've said to a lot of people, like, don't put me in a position where I have to fire you. Like, don't yeah. put me in that position. Like we agreed on what you need to do. Like, please do them. But a lot of times people don't set metrics. It's just like, Hey man, come in. We're building this really fun thing. Yeah. And then they don't do a good job. 
and it becomes, and then the relationship blows up because it's actually, Hey, you just didn't like me. You know, you had a problem with me or you're a bad leader or whatever it is. And so it's like, eliminate all the emotional triggers and just make things as black and white as possible. Make sure they understand the purpose as to why you're showing up, behave the way that you tell them that they should, and then have very clear cut black and white KPIs that determine whether or not they're doing a good job. And it can actually make your life a heck of a lot easier. Um, so that's Man. one piece I would say, um, that's really important to people in the early days. And, and you're not a jerk. If you do that, you're, you're running a successful business. Your, yeah. your job is not to baby your employees. It's yeah. to keep the lights on, right? So they can take care of their babies at home. You know, like that's yeah. what well, it's that's the greatest gift. I mean, that's the way to show them some love too, right? Is to give them that black and white expectation to not cloud it with some emotional, you know, baggage exactly and it it kind of even goes back to where it's like people want to know that they're successful at work and when they have metrics that can tell them they're successful or they're crushing it and then you can high five them that's what gets people excited you know and and it's you know business can be a little tricky because metrics and kpis i'm a big sports fan where it's like hey scoring touchdowns playing defense like there's tangible things where it's like, I know whether or not I, 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 with 10 passes or throw my way, I caught all 10. Cool. Those are very clear metrics, whether or not you did a good job in business, it's tricky. And so that's where it's like, even, especially in the early days when you're like, I don't even know what revenue we should do. I don't really know what it means to be successful. Communicate that and bring them in on that planning and that strategy. Because a lot of times I've found is when I sit down with people that aren't doing a good job, they already know it. Oh yeah. A good job. You know, or they're unhappy there or something. So that's one key piece is just making it as black and white as possible. And then another was, um, I was a big advocate of having two things. One is, yes, of course, the vision, mission, and values. Those are key pieces. You got to have them. Um, Mm -hmm. And one note on values real quick is that I'm a believer that they are not just, hey, this is how we behave here. There are innate qualities that already need to exist in individuals to help you achieve the mission that you say you want to achieve. Yeah, so. It helps and it's it's a filter for hiring as well, not just saying like, well, this is how we, we behave with integrity here. Like, stop it. Like that that needs to be a quality that people have before they come in. And yeah. please with values, don't give me like a word that goes on the wall where there's a poster of like a like an eagle picking up a, a salmon <laughs> out of a river in Alaska that says like, you know, courage or integrity or persistence. Like, don't give yeah. me those. Give me values that like tell stories that, that pique people's curiosity, you know, that like for us at Kalo, our number one value was go home. And people were like, well, that's a really weird value to have for a yeah. company. Like, what are you telling people they should just go? No. And it's like, basically it was saying like, there's never anything that will happen here that will be more important than, than what's going on at home for you. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to tell people that their priority should be their relationships with family and building families how are we to say here at our company that it's also not the most important thing? Like, give me something that tells somebody more that's unique to you that makes people go, wow, that's really cool. Or I like that. That's different. Mm. Uh, I think that that's really powerful. So make your values really unique to you. Don't give me buzzwords that are on a hundred other companies walls. Um, That's one. Then traditions. Um, I'm a big believer in traditions, providing structure culturally for employees. So whether that's consistent meetings, whether it's events that you have, whether it's something everybody does every day, like Mm. there should be traditions that people can rely on to help them feel secure while they're at work. Because sometimes business isn't great and it isn't perfect, 
But it's like, yeah. hey, we're staying true to who we are and what we believe and what we've done. And these traditions are a good example of that. Like for us at Kalo, and it's interesting, like later in the days, I knew my employees were like reluctant to do it. But every Monday, we had an entire company meeting for six years. So it went yeah. from when we had five employees to we had 80. And we had 80 people that would gather on Monday mornings and we would talk and we would share. And what I loved about it was that it gave our VPs that made obviously more money than the coordinators, they were standing shoulder to shoulder, both contributing to a mission that was bigger than just them. Mm. And so it eliminated that hierarchical feeling that comes a lot with like the growth of organizations where it's like, mm. yeah, that person's just on a different level than me. And I was like, stop it. Like they may have more experience, they may have more knowledge, they may have more on their plate, but they are no more valuable than you to contribute yeah. to what it is that we're doing here. And that was one tradition that was really important for us. Yeah. Um, and then That's finally, good. Yeah, really yeah. And then finally, there's just signature pieces that I believe are small things that your business does that make people remember you. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love even throwing the the meeting rhythms into that traditions piece because that really is how those operate. And it, uh, even as you say it, it brings them to life a little bit, right? You commit, there's a little bit of heart that you commit to something like traditions versus this is the meeting rhythms, which I, I'm huge on like, making sure you have your meeting rhythms, totally putting that into your state of the unions, your town halls, yep. your, you know, your sync ups. I think that is, uh, that is great. And, um, and traditions become traditions by people expecting them to happen. And those, you know, providing a feeling, a warm feeling of happening. And so it's like, if you can do that, then like you have people that are looking forward to the Monday meeting, you know? And I actually went through a time where I stopped doing them for a month because of personal stuff. And people were like, Hey, when are we getting those back up? And I was like, man, I didn't even know anybody appreciated these, but they yeah. do. People appreciate tradition because it does provide that structure. Yes. Well, man, that's what I wanted to comment on is, uh, as I've been taking notes on what you're saying, structure keeps being a word you, you use a lot. And that's been a word I've had to warm up to because, uh, I'm a creative type. I'm a visionary kind of type. Uh, and I realized in theory, I hated structure. In reality, I loved structure, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's how a lot of personalities that reject structure is it's only in theory that you don't like it. It's however you've associated with it. But in practice, you like Quentin Tarantino talks about on purpose rejecting giant budgets for his movie because he said it stole his creativity. He liked the constraint of a lower budget movie to be more creative, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what I think is interesting is structure what I've noticed in both raising my kids and both creativity, like writing a book or doing whatever, creating a company now, it, it, it relieves anxiety. Oh, like one of the biggest things it does, it takes away anxiety, the anxiety of what should I be doing? I don't know. No one's made it clear. Should I be spending my time on this or on this? Is this okay? Or is it going to get me in trouble? Like those boundaries for kids and for adults growing up, like it relieves anxiety and then it makes me think about, you know, that study that Google did uh, where they were looking at high-performing teams and psychological safety was one of the, the biggest traits that the high-performing teams had, right? Yeah. And so I'm like, that's a key to psychological safety is not being anxious all the damn time, right? <laughs> if, if you're not anxious, you can take risks because you know, like, this is within the bounds of what the company stands for and what we celebrate here. And so I'm going to show up and just and fire away, right? Uh, did you see that? Is that kind of what, why you gravitate to structure? Is that one of the reasons that it's kind of removing some of that anxiety around the lack of clarity or how do I win here kind of thing? Yeah, it absolutely was. And I've witnessed it a lot in my own evolution. And one thing that I'm actually 
opposed to is that I believe that a lot of the messages by the gurus for entrepreneurs is like, it's just, you just go, man, you got to work your hundred hours and you're just, it's the hustle culture and you got to just go. grind, and grind, like, grind. I actually think it's so detrimental to these people because what it's teaching them is that recklessness is what leads to success mm. and exhaustion is what is actually at the end of the day, the more hours you can put in, then like the more output you're going to see. And like, that's not always the case because yeah. then you, then every idea actually ends up sounding like a good idea or every opportunity actually ends up sounding like a good opportunity when the reality is, as entrepreneurs, our brains work and about 80% of what we come up with isn't good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Structure can help us create a filter for whether or not something is actually the right idea. And I think in the early days, I was a creative. I was in the film and television world, similar to you. Yeah. And I'm like, creativity is about like going to the desert and taking some peyote and tripping and coming. Like, you know, that's yeah, what yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, this is just this creative flow. And like, you can't, like, you can't provide structure to my creativity. And it's just actually scientifically proven to not be true, but it's yeah, also yeah. just in a business wise, it's not, it's not true. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting and people without kids wouldn't get this, but like my three-year-old has the biggest imagination ever and he's got the most structure ever. <laughs> and I think yeah. that like there's kids are examples of like, this is probably how adult, what adults need also, but life gets in the way of us having it. Yeah, and yeah. so it's like they, people, and humans and creativity, which I believe that everybody has elements of creativity. They just yeah. be in their own outlets, right? Yep. It's going to thrive when it's given structure that allow you to go, wait, I can actually focus on this thing yeah, and do this thing really well and then evolve this thing further. Yeah. Um, and and a lot constraints. Of it, you know what's interesting about my kids? I don't know if you've seen this yet. I have two daughters. My oldest are girls. My youngest is a son. Uh, but I was in their playroom one day and one, I was just overwhelmed by the chaos. Like grandparents keep giving you stuff. Your wife keeps picking up something. Thanks. <laughs> and I was like, there is way too many toys in this. So that that's gotta go. But then I was like, but what really like the 80, 20 rule? I was like, there's only like 20% of these toys they ever play with. Right. Yeah. And they were always begging us to play with them. They were, it was like, they couldn't keep their focus on anything. I got rid of almost all of it, except for like the girls Barbies and like their kitchenette. Like I realized yeah. like those things they play a lot with. Yep. They now entertain themselves sometimes for hours with less toys. Like I yep. took away the options for like distractions and boredom, whatever. And I limited the toys. And now they like create stories out of the characters and their, their Barbies and they're cooking meals out of the thing. It was like, I thought if I gave them more options, they would play with themselves more. And I realized it was doing the opposite. They were kind of overwhelmed with options, yeah. right? And it's a, that's a perfect example of what it's like for entrepreneurs because we're wired to go, right? And to find things and to be creative and to do all of this stuff. But if you're trying to build a business, the, the number one, like if somebody was like, What's, why is my business not growing? I would tell you without even needing to even look at anything you're doing, it's focus. Yeah, that's the number right. one reason is that you're trying to do too much. And as a result, you're doing very little and you're trying to speak to too many audiences. You're trying to, you know, do a bunch of product development when you haven't even sold the one product that you have. You, it's like yeah. you just aren't focused. And that's where that structure and that strategy matters because it feels good to get small wins. And when you have structure, you give yourself the opportunity to have small wins and things build upon one another. Mm. If you do 10 different things, things rarely build on one another. And so they all actually end up just staying surface level. And from a marketing mm. and brand perspective, your brand ends up, ends up staying that way because you aren't interested in going deeper and building upon it. I've yeah. got, I've got two questions. Uh, one, 
I want to kind of lean into what I, I just, I can already tell is true about you, which is uh, your ability to coach people and, and to kind of wrap your mind even around, you know, what works, what doesn't work, performance ideas, that kind of thing. You know, some, we had Vern Harnish uh, on here. Oh, who scaling up. Scaling up. And one of the things that uh, he was talking about is the need for managers to become more like coaches. That managers is kind of an outdated uh, way of thinking and approaching employees based on, you know, more of the industrial age and its needs. And now that we are where we are, we actually need more coaches, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really fun for us because we get to help managers become coaches as well. And I'm thinking about for you, I'd just be curious either for you or the people you, you trust in your organization, how did you go about coaching an underperforming team or an under, underperforming individual? What was that like for you guys to what, what mindset or approach did you take to someone who inside that clear structure just wasn't cutting it? You know, what were, what were some of the ways that you, you either turned that around or maybe decided, you know, this person's not a good fit here, but I'd just be curious, any tips you could share with us on how to coach an underperforming person or a team in an organization? Yeah, I would say the first thing is recognizing that they're a human, they're not a job title. Um, and what I found often is that poor performance is actually the result of something unrelated to that task itself. Mm, so yeah. it may be, hey, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Hey, I'm not feeling heard. And that's really where that empathy comes in. So mm. in order for you to actually, I mean, in order for you to solve anything, you look at doctors, you, look at, you have to diagnose what's wrong. Yeah. Right? And based off of either the symptoms that brings you to a diagnosis or when you look at the actual diagnosis itself, that then gives you a plan of action of how to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can't, if you come into them and you just go, Hey, you missed your sales numbers again. Like what's going on here? Do you, like, what, what's the pro it's like, that's not an approach to take the sales yeah. numbers may be down. Right. So you need that metric to help you diagnose. Like those are symptoms. All the metrics that you come up with are symptoms of whether or not this person is healthy. Yep. Um, and so if you can go into it with a place of empathy and I've sat down with somebody and I've actually gotten to the point that they, they actually had problems at home, which was why they were underperforming at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, granted, like you can't underperform at work, but from a management perspective, you can sit down and go, what can we do here to help? Yep. And yep. if you actually can come sit down with an employee instead of reprimanding them, go, how can I help? Like, where are you at? Tell me where you're at. Like we had something where it's like a lot of times coming into meetings, it's like, Hey, where are you at today? You feel like you're bumming. You're, you're feeling good. You're excited. You're like, I'm stressed. Mm. I'm overwhelmed. Like just helping people understand where they're at before they behave is a really helpful way of getting positive output from them. Yeah. And that's initially leading with empathy going, Hey, where you got, where you at? Like take me through yeah. this a little bit. Help me understand. So when you have an underperforming person, you have to, I believe, start there and go, yeah. help me understand what's going on. So good. Because they don't want to underperform. Nobody shows up to work and is like, I want to do a crappy job yeah. today. I can't wait to miss people, out. People want to do well, but when they don't, there's a reason for it. Either sometimes they're not the right fit. Sometimes they're, hey, I just don't like, it's just not what I want to do anymore. Or I'm just not feeling motivated. And, you know, maybe it's the purpose of the organization. I don't align myself with that much anymore. Like yeah. you, you have to use that language and it feels corny. Yeah. So like, are you aligned with our purpose? Like that feels corny. But it's real. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is the meaning and purpose that gets them to show up to work excited every day beyond just a paycheck. You mm. know, because everybody wants to make more money. Like we can all agree on that, right? Like yeah. everybody wants to be paid more. But once you get paid to a certain amount, and I believe in the US it's 
it's been proven that beyond, I think it's like $74,000 that, yeah, the increase in happiness, um, there's not necessarily a correlation to making more money. Yeah. Um, yep. Once you have your basic needs met. Um, and so then there's deeper things for people that they are dealing with. And if you can treat your employees like humans and they feel not just like, Oh, we do like they feel that you treat them like humans. It can actually help you get to a resolution faster. And I've sat down with employees and again, far from perfect. I've learned this the hardest sure. mismanaged yeah. Yeah. a lot of people. Um, but a lot of times they can get to the end and they're like, Hey, maybe we should just kind of like part like this. Maybe, maybe we should create a plan for me to kind of like move on to my next thing. And then I go, rad, can I write you a recommendation? Because I want you to do what you should be doing and what you mm-hmm. feel excited about. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've sat down with employees that are like, honestly, I just don't really think I want to do what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And you're like, great. I know it's scary, but like, you have to understand that in my role as running this company, like I, it, you're, it's not the right fit for you anymore. If that's genuinely how you're feeling yeah. but that by empathizing with them and going, Hey, tell me where you're at. Yeah. Tell me what's actually going on. And sometimes it isn't emotional. Sometimes it is business related. Like, Hey, I yeah. just didn't, I honestly, I, I didn't call enough people last month and that's why I didn't have my sales numbers. And it's like, yeah. okay, well, I, you know, I appreciate the honesty. So then let's make sure that we get to that point again. And then if they don't, then obviously you have to part ways, but there's yeah. actually a really cool opportunity to help people thrive once you meet them where they're at, as opposed to trying to get them where you are or where you want them to be. Yeah, man, it's, it's really good. I'll probably go on my own rant for a second, but I do think do 20 years from now, I think we're going to be in a space where most management and even leadership think in the way that we're talking right now. And it seems like we're in that in-between stage of like, moving on from the industrial age where people worked on the front of assembly lines and like, Hey, their issue likely was because they weren't screwing on. It was a skill set issue, right? Like you really did. It was like, Oh, you're suffering with this. We just need to work on the skill set. But within our digital age and where the transformation, the majority of people's jobs, their performance isn't actually tied to just that skill gap. Like plenty of times skill gap can be the thing, but there is this, the narrative of that person, something that's going on at home. You know, I think that's what I'm, I'm facing. And some of some of the clients that we would work with, it would be the more established company that has been around that leadership. They typically have old guard who think the work and the life should be separate. And the reality is just proven out that that's just not the reality of how humans can operate. Like some of us are a little bit better at waffling and creating our little boxes than others and actually segmenting it out. But for the most part, humans can't do that. That actually it does dictate performance how they're telling themselves their story about how things are going on at home, where those anxieties are are lying. And I think that uh, getting into the human, like you mentioned, I think that's a powerful way to say, we got to start there first. And your trigger, your trigger question of like, you know, where are you at? Or, uh, you know, I've heard it ask, uh, what's on your mind? It's that initial question of just like, make sure that you, even though you have, you, you, you can set the meeting agenda up on the calendar. For the most part, they know what the meeting is about to be about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make sure you ask a different question first because you can extract what you really need to talk about. And I, that's what I love about that trigger question. Just make sure you ask where they're at before, hey, you're not hitting your, your, you know, your dials that you need to hit or whatever that thing is because uh, typically there's more behind the story than that. Uh, yeah, that's good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's an interesting point, like you said, where, um, there was, there's a quote, uh, from, I forget the name of the guy who wrote it, but in the Atlantic, um, where he said, we used to go to, we used to go to work to make things and now we go to work to make us. 
Uh, and there's a really, there's an unhealthy element to that, right? Because our worth and value is not attached to our work. So right. recognizing the separation of those things. However, instead of trying to go, well, let's go back to just making things at work. We're, it, that's not going to happen. And so what we need to do is we need to try and figure out how we can create a healthy lifestyle that exists with the immersion of ourselves into our work the way that we are, because yeah. you used to leave work and there wasn't an email. And all, so you would leave the location you went to every day and you would go home and you were yeah. no longer accessible. Yeah. Well, well now you're accessible 24 hours a day That's and it doesn't mean that you necessarily should be, but yeah. it means that you are. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, and, so it's like, how do we manage ourselves through, what the evolution has been as opposed to going, well, let's go back to the way it used to be. It's like, well, it's not that way anymore. So how do we help people manage themselves through what exists today? Man, one thing I'm thinking of that is a cool transition too is uh, not just through time, but sometimes just through evolution of thinking about business. I think we could say a lot of people might have been uh, in the past seen as more heartless in the sense of like the structure was so clear, the demands were so clear that it's like if you're not – if it's not working out, you're out the door, right? And there's this feeling of like, you're not connecting with me, seeing me as a human, right? Mm -hmm. And then you evolve to what you mentioned earlier, sometimes working with friends or just learning to bring the, the heart into it. You go from heartless to bleeding heart and you are almost like overlooking in the sake of relationship, the KPIs and that this is a business. Yeah. So that's the second mistake, but it's at least going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But where should we go towards? And I think you said it earlier, we should go towards thriving. And what that means is that like, we actually, uh, I, I think it was uh, Yvonne Chouinard was talking about this when I listened to his, how I built this interview, yeah. where it's more of a philosophy that like, I think, and you think as well, that like there's gonna be somewhere that, that I do some work that's meaningful and my contribution to it brings me alive. It causes me to grow, it feels fulfilling. And if that's here, that's awesome. If it's somewhere else, that's okay too. Like if we get out of the scarcity mindset that I need everything to work out and I need everybody to want to be here and you could just sit, like you said, rad. Oh, you want to go somewhere else? That's awesome because then that's good for you. And also it'll be good for us if we find someone that like really comes alive here so that it's not one or the other. It's not like I'll sacrifice the effectiveness of our purpose or mission for the relationship but I also am not going to be heartless. It's just a bigger encompassing thought of like, where are you going to come alive yep. and, and be a great contributor and that the people you want working with you are those people that have found that this is a place I can really bring my skills. I can really bring my heart and show up and this be a thriving environment. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, it, I think it's the concept of thriving within a role is so key because and I think it's like, to your point, there's the pendulum, right? There's the heartless, show up, put your hours in, clock out, go home. I don't know your name, but you're, you know, you're building this business to the like super emotional, like no thing you can do is wrong. Yes. You know, it's like, neither of those is the right answer. And oftentimes the pendulum, I and mean, we see with all kinds of stuff in the world, like the pendulum often swings way further the other way before it actually comes back to the middle. That's right. Um, and so I think that that element of thriving is so valuable because one, it speaks to human feeling. I want to feel as though I'm thriving, but there's also an output That's associated right. with it. And yes. so both of those elements are 
what gives someone the opportunity to thrive. Because if you feel like you're thriving, but the numbers aren't where they should be or your metrics, then you're actually not thriving. And that feeling that you have is almost irrelevant (laughs) because (laughs) it actually, you know, you're wrong, (laughs) you know, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, it's not reality. Whereas like if you, your numbers are killing it, but you don't feel like you're thriving, well then we are doing something wrong from a culture perspective that's doing that. Or maybe you're a high performer that's just in the wrong job. Yes. You know, so it's like that, that really yeah. helps you understand the way to get the most out of people. And yes. um, to your point that you said earlier, it's like, it's still a business. At the end of the day, we are still running a business and yeah. we need to, we are paying for people's lives, both yours and mine, if you're my employee, you know? And yeah. so understanding at the end of the day that we have to be successful. There's, have you guys watched Ted Lasso at all on Apple? I haven't yet. No. Oh, guys, I like, what is it? So it's, uh, it's with Jason Sudeikis. He was on SNL for a while. I love Jason Sudeikis. He's the best. And basically he is, he's the head football coach at Wichita state, which I don't even think Wichita state has a football team, but they're like, (laughs) you know, they're like division two, and he's just like, this video goes viral of him dancing in the locker room with his players and his players all love him, but he looks like a goof. You know, he's like a guy from the middle of Kansas and, and uh, this woman owns a Premier League soccer team and hires him to be the coach of the Premier League soccer team. And he knows nothing about soccer and he's like <laughs> a middle America type dude. And he goes over to England and ends up coaching this soccer team and they just like crush the guy, but he's like the best coach on the planet. Mm. And like, I, I watch him and like next I'm in, like, I'm in my, my house right now, but next time I have my office all set up and decked out when COVID calms down a little bit, I'm gonna have a giant Ted Lasso poster on my wall because like he is just so positive and speaks to the heart of these guys and just like brings a team together through addressing like from an empathetic standpoint, how, where these guys are at and getting to know yes. them beyond just being players but then there's a scene later in the year and he has this assistant coach that is like just dry, like straight faced, but he's just hilarious. And he's kind of like his number two mm-hmm. he goes everywhere with him. And, and um, it's not a spoiler, but like later in the season, you know, Ted Lasso sits down at dinner with him and they're grabbing, they're drinking beers together. And he's saying, you know, well, you know, like it's, you know, winning isn't what matters. It's not why we're here. Like we need to do. And his coach, like the other coach slams his beer down and he's like, <laughs> winning does matter. Like, because if it doesn't matter, then we get relegated and we don't get to coach anymore. We don't get to do what we do. And it was like the best moment of like, that is what coaching is. It's yes. caring for people, but it's also recognizing that you got to freaking win, man. Yes. And you got to compete. And yeah. where it's like the emotion is good, but at the end of the day, we are trying to win because that's how we all keep our jobs. And that's yeah. actually what feels good. We can all... Dude hug each other and pat each other on the back. But if we're losing, nobody likes that. The we difference just, between the counselor and the coach right there. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And we just told our team that, so we're a smaller team, you know, uh, Jordan and I had our own almost like private practice, right. For, for years. And then we joined forces and we've got a small team under us now and we love it. Like we've done a lot of the hard work to navigate the relationship of, we knew you and we're expecting things from you and it's going really great. Yeah, we also have COVID, right? And it's, it's yeah. upset the landscape of things. And uh, we've been really fortunate, but there's been a lot of excuses, good ones, relevant excuses for like maybe taking a week off, you know, or maybe being down for a minute or whatever. And one of the things that we were telling them the other day is like, guys, we have to win. And the main reason we want to win is so that we get to keep playing this game with you. 
Like that's, that's what's on the line. Like we've created our own game. You know what I mean? Like we basically decided like we're going to be a business and we're going to find a way to pay for our own life and our culture and everything. And what's on the line is that we won't get to do this anymore. If, if, if we don't hit our numbers, if we don't succeed, that means you've got to go find jobs elsewhere. We have to go find jobs elsewhere. And so that's, that's what I, like that guy was saying, like, if we don't win, we go down, we get relegated and that's going to change everything. And then, you know, this is not what we want to do. We want to get to keep playing the game in the league we're in and having the, sh- the fans show up and all that kind of stuff uh, really matters. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at great teams. It's like, if you look at the miracle team, right? Like the U S hockey yeah. team, like why were they a great team? Cause they won. Like the great coaches, like the Bill Belichick's and yeah. you know, like the Pat Riley's exactly. and the Phil Jackson's what they, they won. That's why they're great coaches, you know? And so it's like, you can't separate the performance from building unity and teams, you know? It's like, that's just the reality of it. And those two worlds need to collide, but you got to compete. That's so good. Stay on that track for a second. I wanted to ask, uh, I was going to plan on asking at some point. So you already mentioned Ted Lasso, which is just a hilarious segue into this question. But (laughs) I was going to ask you like, Hey, what are your, what are like the most influential books or media that have kind of influenced your journey as a, executive leader just human being even because uh, i think that would be cool to, to hear about too but ted lasso is one um, um guys i love i just i love watching so i'm like i geek out over positive creativity through like i mean i was in film and tv before and so yeah, like yeah. i'm i'm crazy in this way but like ted lasso i love i just love like positive stuff that you just watch and you just like get the chills watching and it just inspires you to do things like i'll yeah. watch uh, the Greatest Showman. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie. Yeah. It is like... Yes. Dude, True. I, no joke. This is, this is, it's embarrassing, but this is who I am. I have nothing to hide. My wife will go to bed at night and I will lay in bed and I'll just watch Greatest Showman clips. Yes. Like, of the songs. I'm like, dude, this is, I gotta, like, oh my God, I just get so fired up. And there's a couple on YouTube that are them, and I don't know if you've seen these. If you're, if you're a big fan like I am, yeah. They're basically their rehearsals for singing the songs. Have you seen Yes, those? yes. All the, they're better. Oh. When he just came back they're from like bad. nose but surgery. Yeah, he had or... his, his cancer on his nose and he had it removed and he wasn't going to sing. Yes. But then like, he's like, I can't not sing. And his the, the background singers are going nuts and they're standing on chairs. And I'm just yeah. like, yes. Oh, like, yes. This, <laughs> is, this is how it should be. Like, oh man. So I geeked yes. out over that stuff. Uh, so, sorry, but that's like. No, no bro. Fantastic. Christmas, Christmas Day. Like we went and saw it uh, as a family. My wife, my in-laws were in town. It's their tradition. I'd never been really down with that. Yeah, like, yeah fine. Yeah. We'll go see a movie on Christmas and the greatest. I didn't know what it was. That was the best part. The best part was I had zero expectations. Just went in blind. Oh, zero expectations. We're like in the front row, and I'm crying. Yes, like genuinely <laughs> crying. True. Right. Yeah. Then we made like our my family when we went to see them. We made them go see it, and then my kids got a hold of it, and we were listening to the soundtrack like every day on repeat um but yeah yeah, dude like i can still picture the scene of him running back to get his wife oh my gosh yes like he goes in the bar that song and he's in the bar and he's running oh man i was crying that like three nights ago unbelievable it's a great kalo story you know oh it is totally (laughs) that's why i think think, like it's an entrepreneurial movie like that's where i think it's important that you can as like corny as it may seem but you like you look at from him, like even that from now on song, he's singing basically saying like, Hey, I lost myself along the way. Mm -hmm. And then from now on, like, I'm not going to 
do those things anymore. Like I'm going to get back to the reason that we started this thing. And yeah. for me, like it just, I experienced that myself growing my business where it's like, man, it's really easy to get caught up in what a business is providing for you. Yeah. And it's really easy to lose sight of that. And man, once you get to that point, it's like you end up feeling hollowed out. Like you're, you're just kind of like a shell of yourself. Yeah. And that's why that song just resonates so much with me genuinely. Yeah. Like, because growing my business, I'm like, man, I got really anxious and stress ridden over growing this thing. And it's really easy to lose sight of like what all matters at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, that's right. Gosh, my own random story to hop on the, the train about once a month, I'll send uh, the other side, which is, you know, the, the scene with Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron. Uh, I'll send that to a guy that I've been trying to recruit for about a couple years. I'll send it to him just through Spotify. It's oh. just my, my little drip of like, dude, come on. Oh, come on over. You. It's the come best scene. Oh, it's, it's so best. good. Oh, guys, I love that you can geek out with me over that. So that's yeah. okay. So there's the greatest showman, like just movies in general. Um, yeah. I just think are super influential and I really appreciate those. I'm a total bookworm. Um, so I will just read as many things as I can get my hands on. Uh, yeah. The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg is a book that like a lot yeah. of people have read up to this point, but I think it's really helpful for entrepreneurs because it teaches you why you do the things that you do <laughs> and yeah. that your brain's desperate attempt to put your life on autopilot, which is in its eyes, if you can say that, are it's the right way of doing things. But if you start off with bad habits that like they're going to continue on because your brain has made those normal. And yeah. I'm, a, I'm a, a large believer. And a lot of times if I am coaching like an entrepreneur, I say, what are the biggest problems that you as an individual are bringing to this business? Because often what I've seen is that biz, the biggest problems in businesses are the largest re reflections of the inadequacies of its founder. Wow. Um, so if you're somebody that's scatterbrained, your business is going to feel that way. If you're somebody that doesn't like planning, your business is probably not going to have a plan. Like yeah. if you're really opportunistic, then you're probably going to be chasing too many things. Like just recognizing that about yourself. And then you can take a step back and look at your own business and go, Oh shoot. Like we don't manage this really well. Yeah. Uh, and for me, like I'm not incredibly detail oriented and I'm not, I'm a, I'm, I'm an optimist. And so man, I'm going to miss out on a lot of things that are really important from a, just a tangible operating a business perspective. So it helps also with who you need to hire. You're like, man, I, I even That's the right. question I asked earlier is like, what don't you enjoy? Or what did you find out that you enjoyed? Well, part of it is like what I, I found out what I wasn't good at, you know, and that's where it's like, okay, then bring in people to do those things. You don't, you don't need to force yourself to be miserable. Like that's entrepreneurship right. and misery don't need to go hand in hand, even though that's kind of the message that's being preached. Yep. Um, and so that is just a, a book that meant a lot to me. Um, I myself am a Christian, so I read, I read a lot of books that I believe contribute to um, leadership and just the way that you view people. So even if you aren't one yourself, I think that there's a lot of principles that can be learned about caring for people and putting yourself in people's shoes and understanding how to best lead them. So um, Ravi Zacharias, who just passed away, was um, mm -hmm. a Christian apologist, but just was brilliant. And I, I just have so much respect for people that understand their craft and then just go a hundred percent into it and just say like, this is why I'm here. And I just want to be the best version of this that I possibly can and understand how it's going to contribute to helping others fulfill their purpose. Because I believe that that's what everybody's doing, right? Everybody, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, you're creating a vessel or a product or service that's helping somebody fulfill their purpose here on earth. And that's where yeah. I think there's a really rad element of unity, which is like, I wish our world, especially America could get on the same page. Hell you know, yeah. a little bit, but it's like, I won't go down that rabbit hole, but 
Yeah. I just think at the recognition of that and understanding the power of just impacting the individual versus mm-hmm. needing to impact the whole um, mm-hmm. and realizing that the whole is a collection of individuals um, and starting with that. So man, uh, just from like a spiritual perspective, that's something that just means a lot to me that helps guide yeah. me in my leadership. And then, you know, I like, I love pulling bits and pieces from different leaders and different people that, um, you know, view the world that I'm in through different lenses and I can kind of pull bits and pieces from it. And even that scaling up book, um, yeah. a lot of like the strategy that I've created to help people grow their businesses is entirely based off of what that is, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I feel like that book is a little robust, um, yeah. for a lot of businesses. Like uh, we, I tried to implement it and I was like, it, I ended up overwhelming my team. Right. Um, and so I actually draw, you know, maybe like, half of the principles from and I'm like these are incredibly valuable to any business and so I want to try and utilize these but um, just books like that where it's like cool I can pull bits and pieces from this and how to contribute to my philosophy in business you know and so there's a lot of really good a lot of really good ones out there and one thing I would say to people is I know that um, I would go against the Gary V mindset where I remember he was on a talk show talking to Steve Harvey telling him not to read books anymore because nobody does it but I would actually yeah yeah I would actually I would actually, he, his thing was like, I can Google and get the, the answer that your book is trying to tell you in 300 pages. And yeah. I would challenge it because I think that reading a book requires discipline. And I yeah. think that that's a quality that's important for people. Yeah. That yeah. He would agree with that part. Probably. Yes. Yeah, probably. You know, and it's like a lot of times he says things that I respect it just to say things, you know, and things that he believes, but I yeah. believe that reading books is, you know, just such a powerful process and such a discipline, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and so that's uh, that's been a lot to me. Well, it gives you an immersion. Yeah. You, like even if you got the uh, concept in the first ten pages, like I sometimes need three hundred pages to like be kind of immersed in it and think it over and, and roll it around. Me further. Yeah. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Like I need to decide. Even am I going to commit to this? Like as I'm reading a book, like all right, that's a good idea, but like, am I going to work this into? Am I going to disrupt a pattern and start a new pattern? Am I going to work this into my business, my life? Um, and I love that you brought the faith part. I don't, a, a lot of people, we haven't talked about this much, but my background was actually uh, a pastor for 10 years. Oh, no way. Yeah. So that was That's amazing. And it was interesting too, not just to bring up that similarity, but like, I wasn't sure how that would translate into the work we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Right. What I did realize though, uh, was I had a lot to learn on the business side in terms of like the ins and outs of the context of the conversation I was in, sure. but that everywhere I went, people were still people. And that was what I learned the most in 10 years of doing that was like, I've been having 10,000 hour rule, right? I've been having 10,000 hours of conversations with people about what really is going on, what's really t- making them tick. So the way I put it, even to a private equity firm that uh, was going to hire me a while back to coach somebody, uh, they're like, what qualifies you? I'm looking at your background, which I was honest about, like what qualifies you to coach our people here about private equity? And I said, well, to be honest, if it's about private equity, nothing. I said, I had to Google what that even meant on the drive up here. Cause I wasn't sure. I said, but you've already hired people that know private equity. I was like, that's not, I was like, you're asking me to coach your people. And that I know a lot about. I was like, I've spent the last decade looking under the hood of people's lives and understanding what makes them tick. And so I can help you with that. And they hired me for that. Right. And so I've started to realize more and more that like until AI fully replaces us, which I don't think it will, but like until that disaster scenario it might happen, people are still, getting the results for businesses, right? And so that's why we don't just need strategies and tactics and tools. We also need what makes our hearts come alive when we watch 
The Greatest Showman or more of a deep philosophical and spiritual approach to life and what really leads to fulfillment uh, is, is so important to really get the most out of people. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, and there's a strong resonance from us on that. Yeah. No, on, on, uh, real, real quick, real quick, I was yeah. just on that. Like a lot of it's also understanding motivation and the answer isn't always money. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think that that's, we, with the society has taught us, these are the things that matter in life. And so we think that they are what motivate people. And actually when you dig deeper, it's like, they actually aren't at all what motivate people. And there's right. a lot <laughs> of intricacies that come along with individual hearts that mm-hmm. can help you better lead them if you understand what it is that motivates them and also challenging them on that question. If you just say, hey, what did it, what, just sit down right now and tell me what motivates you. They have to then now dig inside and go, I actually have to answer that question because I can't just say a buzzword because it won't work. Right. And so right. I would set this manager up to fail if I don't communicate them the truth. And it may be like, hey, I want flexibility because I want to be able to spend more time with my family. Like, Okay, great. So me paying you more, you could actually save your business money. Like if you go around throwing money at everybody, it's motivation. Like you could actually be costing yourself money because what that person really wanted was to be able to get off at 2 p.m. on Fridays because their kid gets out of school and they want to take them to the ice cream. You know, like that's just a totally different perspective, but understanding that just can make you a better leader of the people within your organization. God, who are we talking to? Maybe this wasn't on the podcast, Jordan, but there was a there was a, a business founder we were talking to, a really successful company, and his CFO was like the thing he needed. Like he needed somebody that knew the finances and was – That would be me. That would be me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But what he didn't have was the money to pay at the time someone with the caliber of skill he needed. So he found somebody that had all the background, all the qualifications, but was in a stage of their career that they didn't really want a full-time job. What they wanted was the flexibility to spend time with their family, to travel and whatever. And so he gave them that. And, and so that was the compromise. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll ask less of you in terms of time in a week, but you get paid less. And he was like, yeah, I don't need much money. Yeah. He'd already made all, he was like, I already made all my money, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, guy. Yeah. yeah, so this guy ends up playing the role as like his CFO and gave what his company needed, but he didn't have to like find a way to pay, you know, $300,000 for this role. I just thought that was a brilliant creative example yeah. of that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it can help out with, with actually saving the company money and actually getting the people that you need. It's just a really cool way of doing it. I love that. Well, okay. We're realizing that uh, as our podcast keeps going longer and longer that we, <laughs> <laughs> I talk we, so much. I apologize. No. Every interview has been like this. We're having so much fun in these conversations. We keep butting up on the time we promised you. So I want to honor that. Uh, and let's go ahead and dive into the lightning round. Uh, lightning. So Jordan, take us into that. All right. Boom, man. Question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? I would probably say that it's not about you and it's not about me either. Nice. Uh, what's the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business, and what's the worst? Oh, gosh. There's a lot of bad advice that people get, um, especially with social media. Down there, man. There's a lot of bad advice. But I would say that the good advice <laughs> that I got is meaning a lot to less people is more important than meaning a little to more people. Um, and basically what that goes into is, like, just go deep. It, like, the the brands, like – Companies that resonate with people are companies that go deep into communities and understand what makes them tick and communicates to who they are, not just what they think that they want. Um, And I think a lot of times in the early phases of business, people want to just, they think that they're, again, they're limiting their opportunity if they're focusing on just a few audiences or just a few communities, but it just creates so much focus for your business. 
Um, mm. And then bad advice, I would say, is that bigger is better. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Question number three, if you could go back in the future, uh, you're hopping in the DeLorean, man. You're going back in the future for five seconds. You're going to the past. You get to shout one thing to yourself from the driver window. What are you saying to yourself, and when would you go back? Um, I would probably go back to the peak of like my business growth. So like when things were good, right? Cause when things are good, like an undefeated team doesn't watch nearly as much film as a, as a team that hasn't won a game does. Wow. Um, and so it's basically, I would say to myself, and this is kind of like a metaphor, but it makes sense is that if mom and dad don't get along, the kids know it. And what I mean by that is, if you aren't aligned with your partner or the leaders in your organization, your employees know it and they feel it and it negatively impacts the entire thing. And mm. my business, my business partner and I are very different people. Um, and we, once the business really took off, it's like we agreed on what the vision was of the business when it really took off. But then when it was like, okay, where do we go from here? That's when it really comes into like, what vision are we trying to create here? Like, what do we have for the future beyond these five years? Mm. Um, and for a lot of the time we weren't aligned on what it was that we were building and it negatively impacted actually a lot of the organization. And so I would say before you take another step further to go anywhere, the two of you have to be entirely on the same page on what it is that we're creating here. So yeah, good. Uh, yeah. What caused causes you or caused you the most worry when leading an organization? I would say the, concern of we becoming me so when you start sitting down with employees and they start talking about what they want and what their desires are and when the individual becomes more important than the collective organization or the purpose as to why it exists sweet uh what's your what's your current big hairy audacious goal what's your current scaling up term scaling up right Vern. so Collins, he's got one of those guys have it. Either way, it is definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I love it. It's super cool. Um, I would say, you know, for Kalo, when, you know, I sold Kalo at the end of last year. Um, and so my, I've been working with the business um, past the sale beyond that, but my time with Kalo is actually uh, coming to a close this month. Um, and so I'll be moving on to, to next things. But I, when, when Kalo really was, when I was, super immersed in it before the sale and even beyond it for a brand, like our big goal, like the big vision of what we had was that we genuinely wanted to reduce the divorce rate. And I believe that like that big, hairy, audacious goal really is kind of an unattainable goal. It's like, what's this big thing out here in the future that you really want to do? And that really is what it was. Like we wanted to help people like love the concept of being married and provide a mm. lifestyle that contributed to living a marriage that wasn't stagnant or stale, but that was bold and that was fearless and that went for it and then really made the individuals better. And as a result, people valued what marriage provided for them in their lives, as opposed to seeing it as a potential barrier or a potential sort of limiting factor. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. I'm glad yeah. we got that. Cause I, I realized the whole time we've been talking about the bigger purpose of the, of the company and never actually got to see what that was. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, that was it. That was it for me. I mean, yeah, we were selling a silicone ring, but I, what I believe is we were giving, we were actually selling people the opportunity to represent the largest commitment that they'd made in their lives and live a lifestyle that contributed to making that better. Like yeah. that's what I believe that we provided for people. Um, 
And I read in some book somewhere that's like, don't tell people what you make or what you do, tell them what you make possible. Yeah. Um, and so for, for that's just what I believe is like, man, now, now people can like be so stoked on this decision that they made in their life, which isn't always easy. And it can be a grind. It can be a hustle. But when you're living that lifestyle and you're living out your own purpose and you can look down and know that your family's with you just through a ring, like it's super powerful. So mm. that was the big goal there. And then now for me, sort of in the next phases of thing, it's like, I really just want to become a thought leader on brand building and culture creating. Like that's really what yeah. I want to do is just help people sort of like we had lightning in a bottle at Kalo and there was a lot of magic. Um, but a lot of that can be created in other businesses through that structure and through aligned leadership and through a clear message for customers. And so that's really what I want to create next. Wow, man. Well, you're going to be clearly successful at that because you are uh, quite adept, quite adept at, uh, at doing I needed, that. I needed that little kick in the ass today. I appreciate that motivation. Thank you. Come on now. You got it. You got it, man. Uh, so, Ben, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your story, for being vulnerable. Uh, again, it's so cool to, to, to have seen your first ads when they were coming out in Facebook uh, to what it is now to me wearing a ring before I even, you know, this, uh, a Kayla ring before I even knew that you were going to be on our podcast uh, to yeah. see how that vision has become a reality is truly one of the most unique and beautiful things I think in life is to see a dream go through its gestation process and survive and turn into something that lives outside of us is is really a miracle. So, man, thank you for sharing that miracle story with us and your wisdom has been truly inspiring. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This is super cool. Thank you, Casey. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.